In the first book of Kings, we're journeying towards the conclusion. Elijah is about to be taken up to heaven. He won't even have to die, like Enoch before him and the Blessed Mother after him, in reward for his faithfulness and trust in the one God and his long service and suffering as a prophet. Elijah is going to be taken body and soul into heaven, riding on a chariot carried on a whirlwind. But before he can go to heaven in reward for his work on earth, it is important that someone else be chosen to take on the task of prophecy to that stiff-necked and hardened heart people of Israel that don't want to admit or repent of their sins and their pagan idolatry or their covenant faithlessness. Prior to this passage that we hear this morning in the first reading, God told Elijah, go on top of Mount Horeb, I will speak to you there. And Elijah was already hiding and fleeing for his life because the king Ahab and queen Jezebel had vowed to pursue him to the ends of the earth to kill him because he kept calling them out for the worship of a pagan god named Baal. And thus it was that Elijah is hoping that when he gets to the top of Mount Horeb, God will give him permission to retire. Either that or just take his life before the king and queen do. And in a tiny whisper, God tells Elijah what we hear today. Go find Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, and anoint him as your successor. Elijah is relieved, and he's overwhelmed with a sense of peace because he has worked so hard and so long, he suffered so much, and now he gets to pass it all off on somebody else. Poor Elisha, who didn't see it coming. God spoke to Elijah and told him what was to occur. He didn't tell Elisha. He didn't tell Elisha's dad. And that's why when Elijah comes and finds Shaphat's son plowing the fields, he's caught totally off guard, very much by surprise. And Elijah doesn't offer him the job or interview him to see if he'd be good at it. Instead, he takes off a scarf called the prophet's mantle made out of sheep's wool, and he just places it on Elisha's shoulders and draws him to himself as if this is an offer you can't refuse. But it means in that very moment, the succession has already happened. There's been a tr peaceful transfer of power. The prophecy, the powers attached to it have moved from Elijah to Elisha. Elisha was never given a chance to say anything, yea or nay. And so he wants to bide his time. He wants to go talk it over to his, with his dad and say, is this the right thing for me? Elijah's offended that Elisha is not honored to receive this responsibility. And Elisha realizes that he has made an error, and he seeks desperately to correct it. He's got all of these oxen plowing the field, and just to show that he is the son of a very wealthy man, it would have been much of someone's life savings in Israel 2,000 years ago to afford one ox. And yet Shaphat has his son pulling 12 yoke. That's 24 different animals pulling those plows. That means that his dad has a lot of land, his dad has a lot of money, and if he remains faithful to his father, Elisha, it will all be his in the inheritance. So when he decides then to slaughter the animals and to use the wood from the yoke in order to create a fire so they can have a barbecue to feed all of Elijah's entourage, he truly is burning his bridges. He is leaving it all behind because he won't be able to go back home again. Shaphat of Abel-Meholah would probably ring him up if he showed his face there after costing his father so much money in that barbecue. But it's a sign to us of how quickly Elisha went from reluctance 
to full commitment that he was willing to leave a considerable amount of wealth and the promise of more all behind for an uncertain future to just carry on the work that Elijah was doing. And Elijah was famous and notorious. It was known that he was powerful, but it was also known that he suffered greatly. Elisha, in accepting the mantle that has been placed upon him, is accepting the power of the prophet, but also accepting the risks and the rewards that may go along with it, including suffering, the willingness to suffer, to obtain, and to fulfill God's will. That was almost a thousand years before Jesus called the fishermen of Galilee, Lake James and John, to lay down their nets, to step out of their boats, and come follow him. And like Elijah, we don't, we don't see much hesitation with Jesus' apostles when they are called. They didn't ask, where are you leading us? Will the journey be hard or easy? Will we be coming back this way again? What is the pay like? Do you have a 401k? Nothing like that. They just left. They just left. Whether it was the fishermen of Galilee or Matthew at his customs post, there was something compelling about Jesus that drew them in and drew them on, as they would follow him anywhere. Well, mostly anywhere, as we shall see. Because now we find ourselves at the end of the ninth chapter of Luke. There's been a lot going on in this fundamental, pivotal chapter in this gospel. It started last Sunday in the same chapter when we heard the feeding of thousands with five loaves of bread. But then, twice in chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus informs his apostles about his destiny and his destination. His destination is Jerusalem. His destiny is the cross on Calvary. Twice in chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus informs those apostles that he's about to fulfill his mission, that he was sent from heaven to earth in order to go to Jerusalem, not only for the Passover, but for his passion. That in that moment, a Passover unlike any other, he would become the lamb, the priest, the altar, and the sacrifice. He didn't just tell them that he was going to die, like I'm going to die of cancer or I'm about to have a heart attack. He told them he was going to be executed. What's more, he said that if you want to follow me any further, you must deny yourselves and take up your crosses. And that is when the ranks begin to thin. Up until this point, in the thousand days of Jesus' ministry, the crowds were swelling because people were taken in by Jesus' mighty words, his mighty deeds, and his mighty promises of a kingdom where they could truly be free for people that had always lived oppressed in an occupied land. But now that he told them the cost of discipleship for himself and for them, fewer and fewer willing to pay the cost, fewer and fewer willing to follow him. And that is why when he goes into the Samaritan town today, the Samaritans who were Gentiles, people for whom Jesus had worked many of his greatest miracles and who so welcomed him even when the stiff-necked Jewish people refused to do so, now even they have turned against him. And Luke tells us why. Because they know his destination is Jerusalem. They know that he's going there for his execution. They don't want to get in trouble with Rome. They've seen all too often how that ends. If he wants to suffer, that's on him. We're staying away. This is why we call it the lonesome road to Calvary. Because Jesus, who once had throngs following him, will now find himself leading a smaller and smaller flock toward his certain fate. And yet he is undeterred at any twist or turn on that journey. And what a journey it will be. Luke is only 24 chapters in length. 
Jesus begins his final journey up to Jerusalem in chapter 9, and it will go on for nine chapters before he gets there on Palm Sunday. And we will spend this summer unpacking these gospels of the experience Jesus has along the way of more and more rejection, more and more excuses like those he experiences today. Well, I'd like to follow you, but I have to go bury my dead. I'd like to go with you, but I have to go talk to my dad. Whatever the case may be, Jesus seemed very frustrated with those excuses. He wants people to follow him wherever he leads us, for whatever purpose, and as long as he leads us. And yet we sometimes, like Elisha, or like the Samaritans, or in some cases the apostles, find ourselves hesitating, second-guessing. You may be God, but are you sure you know God's plan for me? Maybe we find ourselves subject to unwillingness, or unworthiness, or just fear, getting in the way of our willingness to even try. God understood that sending Jesus to Jerusalem would cost him everything. Jesus understood that going there and doing that was the only way to fulfill God's destiny, God's plan for him, this side of heaven. And though the journey may be long, though it is never promised that it's going to be easy, though the way of the cross that we travel will be painful and at times isolating, full of ridicule, rejection, and persecution, the greater the risk, the greater the rewards, and the best is truly yet to come beyond the horizons of this life. And if Jesus was fully in it to win it, fully invested, locked and loaded, ready with blood, sweat and tears, fear and trembling to work out our salvation, what would we be willing to throw in his basket? What would we be willing to contribute towards the salvation that he has purchased for us at a price? Would we be willing to suffer? Will we leave anything behind, let alone everything behind, in order to follow him? That's a question the Lord poses to each of us who would be his disciples. And the best way for us to be a follower of Jesus is to make followers for Jesus. And the only way we can do that is to live and to love the mysteries of our faith and to share them with everyone we meet. So perhaps that road to Calvary will be a little less lonesome because we won't abandon Jesus who never abandoned us.